Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read more books like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through the Google form included in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access digital early reads and pre-pub author chats, as well as my new Traveling Galley program. The link to join is in my show notes. Today, Michelle Hoffman joins me to chat about the second ending. Michelle is a former arts and entertainment writer for the Arizona Republic. She began formal piano lessons at the age of five and now lives in Arizona with her husband, two spoiled shih tzus, and a very large piano. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Welcome, Michelle. How are you? Good. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you about the second ending because I had been hearing glowing things from people and I had so much fun reading it. Great. I'm so glad. Well, before we dive into my questions, will you give me a quick synopsis of the second ending for those that won't have read it yet? Yeah. So in this story, our main character, Prudence, is a former piano prodigy and she was discovered at the tender age of three and already hailed as the next Mozart. So she became very famous. Um, she played the White House at a young age, Carnegie Hall. She toured all over Europe. She was on all the talk shows like Dick Cavett. And she uh, was the youngest person to host Saturday Night Live. But her career kind of had that same trajectory as most child stars. She was exploited by her abusive grandmother who eventually took all of her money. And she, like all child stars, grew up and wasn't such a novelty anymore. So she, at 18, she decided to run away from home and made a good living writing commercial jingles. And one in particular becomes very famous. Even though it earns her a lot of money, she's dissatisfied artistically. And the novel begins when Prudence is now 48 and she has a midlife crisis after she and her husband drop their youngest child off at college. She kind of, you know, has all this time to herself and doesn't know what to do. And she becomes obsessed with her mortality. And she's sad because the only thing she's going to be remembered for is the circus-like atmosphere of her childhood and not the actual music. So she eventually decides that she wants to prove that she's a true artist. And she agrees to compete on a reality TV show that features dueling pianos. And her competitor, who is also the host of the show, Alexei Petrov, he's a 22-year-old Russian pianist, and he has his own troubles. 
His mother is the ultimate stage mom who pretty much dictates how he spends nearly every minute of his day. So when the novel begins, he's not sure who he's really playing the piano for, himself or his mother. And because of this rigid schedule, it's left little time for him to develop any sort of a personal life. So he's he's lonely and isolated. And as the story progresses, the stakes become higher and higher for the both of them. Each has to absolutely win the competition. So there's some blackmail in here. <laughs> there's some secrets that get unearthed. So there's a little something for everyone. How did you come up with the idea for the story? The general idea, the midlife crisis, getting back to her roots with music, but also the dueling pianos and the secrets. How did all of it come about? Yeah, so I was I was fascinated with this idea that a midlife crisis could have a positive effect, that this this dissatisfaction with life could just kind of push us out of our comfort zone and and really look to fulfill our potential. And it's scary because there's this fear of failure. We're not as brazen as we are in our youth. But I do think as a society, we focus too much on what we lose when we age rather than what we gain. And by the time you hit midlife, you you have quite a toolbox how to navigate it. I mean, how many people, if you really think about it, want to be 20 again? <laughs> exactly. It's, you forget. And um, so I, I really wanted the midlife crisis to be positive. I also think when we hit midlife, whatever dreams we had in our youth, we kind of abandon them because we think it's too late. We're too old to go after them. And we think of dreams as something for young people. And I kind of wanted to explore that concept of dreams because they're so important to our day-to-day existence. Holding on to a dream is wonderful. And we rarely vocalize that because we think people will think it's silly. And the whole concept of, of dreams, I uh, back in 2008, when I wrote for the Arizona Republic, I interviewed uh, Dale Wasserman, the Broadway playwright, and he uh, wrote Man of La Mancha. And that play is one of the most performed plays in musical theater. And so I, I was thrilled. He was 94 at the time of the interview, and he was putting out, uh, at 94, his latest play. And so I was plugging his latest play. And I remember driving to the interview and it wasn't like any other interview. It was, it just felt auspicious to me and like it was going to be eventful. And it was a wonderful interview. He was incredibly engaging and so interesting. Uh, It was one of my favorite interviews. Anyway, so one of the famous songs in Man of La Mancha is The Impossible Dream. And back in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, that song was everywhere. It was a big hit. Um, It was used for coffee commercials, all sorts of commercials and sayings. And so I asked him about the song. And so we're at 2008. And I said, wow, that's a really famous song. You know, what, uh, why do you think it was so popular? And he said, everyone always gets it wrong about that song. Impossible is just what it means. It means the dream is not attainable. The power is in the dream, a drive that engenders the person dreaming it so he doesn't give up. And I think, and I use this in the novel, the ranchers from John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, George and Lenny, they embody that concept beautifully. These two ranchers, they have pretty bleak lives, uh, no family. They're pretty nomadic. They go from one ranch to the other. They don't make any real strong connections. They blow all their money right when they get paid, but they they have this dream. And 
George wants to buy a little piece of land and grow, you know, have, have a little farm, get some chickens. And, and he talks about this dream almost every day. And Lenny, Lenny loves when he talks about the dream. He often asks them, if you remember in the novel, and Lenny's dream is to tend the rabbits. And they never, you know, it, it's never going to happen. And it's evident in the novel that it's never going to happen. But I love that that's what got him out of bed every day. And so I wanted that to be part of the novel that eventually, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the day-to-day process of it, it's that satisfaction that we get from a single day that's, that I think is the goal. Yeah, so I tried to do that best I could in the novel. <laughs> I love Mana La Mancha. And I have the funniest story about it because my parents were big musical theater people, loved to go to see shows. So we had season tickets. We would go from when I was very young. And the first time I saw it, I think I was in like eighth grade and I was really tired. I actually ended up sleeping through a lot of it. And I was <laughs> like, that is not a very good show at all. And then my mom's like, I'm really surprised. I think it's one you would like. And so I saw it again later, like when I was in college and I loved it. And I think it just hit me wrong the first time. I was probably just tired or, you know, was thinking, what am I doing here on a school night or whatever it was. But it's just such a beautiful show. And I love the message. And that's fabulous that you got to interview him. Yeah. And I asked him, I, I said, why do you think that play is so popular? And he said, because there's hope in it. And that's what, that's what grabs people. And after that interview, I got in my car and well, before I got in the car, the photographer came. It was kind of like a, a really, really joyous atmosphere. Um, he was, ha- Del Wasserman was happy and he, they were setting up the shot to photograph him and he hands me his Tony award <laughs> and he said, can you hold this for a second? <laughs> Just, it was wonderful. And I got in my car and I was driving home thinking about the story because I was on a tight deadline. It was right before Christmas. And I just burst into tears. I just was overcome with all this emotion. I couldn't figure it out. And I kind of feel like it wasn't, it wasn't sad tears. It was like, oh my gosh, I want to do something. And, you know, I started writing creatively again. Like it kind of just released this, this fantasy. It, it, it made me want to do it made me want to write creatively and try to publish. And I think that's what I want for people to have that. And, and a few days later, he died. So it was crazy. Like, I think he died two days later, and they didn't announce it until after Christmas. But I'm so happy thinking back to that, because those were his last words. And, you know, this novel is kind of a tribute to that. And it was a really powerful experience. It's not often that people can truly pinpoint exactly when they said, okay, I need to change what I'm doing or I need to try something new. That's very cool that you have such a very defined origin story for this book. Yeah, it was a pretty powerful experience, pretty life-changing for me. Definitely sounds like it. And then you've played the piano most of your life, correct? Yes. So I started around five years old. My mom would take me to Yamaha. Yamaha was like this little class for very, very young children. And you were in a group setting and it taught you how to read music and how, you know, the value of notes and you could play little songs and you had a little kit and, and I just loved it. So it, it started off very positive for me. 
And, and, and not, that's not the case with people back in those days, you know, with piano instructors, they could be very strict. And I just loved it. And I had, I, when I had my children, when they were little, I enrolled them in Yamaha. I don't know if that's still around anymore, but it, it was a fabulous experience. And then I, I continued to play. My mother had a cousin who was a former big band leader back in the 40s and the 50s. And when those musicians retired, they would teach children, give children private lessons. So I had a few of these incredible piano instructors that were from the era (laughs) (laughs) and really interesting people. And so I just really didn't have a bad experience with piano. I, I, I wasn't a performer. I didn't like to perform and I still don't, but I do play every day. And, you know, it's like, how some people work out every day. I, I play my scales, my finger exercises. <laughs> I try to work on a new piece. And every once in a while, I'll, well, I haven't done it in a while, but I'll, you know, seek out some instruction because, you know, it's good to, good to check in with somebody who's uh, an instructor every once in a while. So yeah, so a lot of the music from the novel is, is music I play. Do you have a favorite piece that you play? Oh my gosh, that's, that's one of those, who's your favorite child? <laughs> I think it depends on the mood I'm in and the day I'm in. I really do love the Rachmaninoff piece, the 18th variation. That is just such a beautiful piece. And playing it, I can feel the story Rachmaninoff was trying to tell. It's in three movements and it's so well done. And you get to the last movement and it's just like, wow. Um, that's probably one of my favorites. I love the War Horses. I love um, Moonlight, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, Ronda Alaturka, Mozart's Ronda Alaturka. I, I, you know, and I also love every once in a while not being so serious about it and getting the easy, easy arrangements and sitting down and having a glass of wine and just playing, you know, um, Moon River or something. It's, it's, it's not about always having to achieve. I think, I think we push that too much on students who take piano. You have to enjoy it. It has to be fun. And Sunday is usually my day when I don't, I don't play finger exercises or scales. I just have a drink and play whatever I want. And it's, it's great. It's a privilege to be able to do that. Well, and with no spoilers, you have Prudence do that at some point in the story as well. And I could tell it must be something that was natural to you as it was written, the joy of the music and it flowing through her and how she wanted to make other people feel when they heard music. Yes, yes. When I was writing the novel, I so I usually get up in the morning and the first thing I do is write. So I'll probably be at my desk by 5 a.m. and I'll write for a couple hours and then... I'll feed the dog and do all that morning stuff. And then I would sit at my piano with a composition notebook and a pen and I would play a song and I would write down how I felt when I was playing it. Did it tap into a memory? Did it remind me of someone or something? And then the real challenge of writing about music is making it concrete for the reader. And so I would write, you know, there's a line in there that says chords like clock chimes. And I wanted to really give a a visceral experience for the reader. So 
yeah, it, so I did feel all those things. And I mean, obviously I'm the writer, <laughs> but yeah, I wanted, I wanted people to experience the music and, and know it's not all work. It's, it's joy. A lot of it's joy. I'm a huge fan of music. I just love to listen to music. And people ask me all the time about audiobooks and whether I listen to them when I walk or in the car. And I'm like, I'm such a fan of music that that pretty much overrides anytime I'm going to be listening to anything, it's going to be music because I just love it. It makes you happier. It brings you back to a memory or it just makes your mood better. Whatever it is, I just feel like you can't replace music. So I do like audiobooks and I listen to them occasionally, but I would say 95% of the time, if I'm going to listen, I'm immediately turning on Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't pass it up. I just love music. So I like that your story was so much about music and not just the child prodigy aspects of it, which I did enjoy, but music and and how it can bring people together and how it makes you feel and the importance of imparting that to others. And I just loved that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, classical music, I think it can be elitist to some people and intimidating. And one of my goals in the novel was that, and I hope I was able to do this, is to get anybody to, you don't have to be, you don't have to know anything about music to listen to classical music. And I I really wanted people to, you know, maybe look on Spotify for uh, Eric Satie's piece or, you know, Mozart or Beethoven or Chopin. I mean, it's that music still holds up. It's just beautiful. It's well done. And yeah, I think the, the use of humor kind of, I wanted to take the elitism out of that whole piano world. It's a pretty tight world sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. And even the classical music world, not just with respect to piano, but just generally, I think it is intimidating to people sometimes. But I think if you can start with some of the more popular pieces that are so peppy and really beautiful, like Vivaldi, you know, then you realize, oh, there's a lot of this music that I would like. Now, I don't usually listen to classical music a ton, but I do listen to it sometimes, especially when I'm trying to do something else so that I can have the music in the background, but I'm not trying to hum lyrics. And there are so many beautiful pieces. Yeah, yeah. What about the dueling piano idea? How did you decide on that? So when I was writing for the newspaper, I used to do arts and entertainment. So I'd go out and find, you know, places to go, things to do. And I did a story on this dueling piano bar in Scottsdale. I don't, I don't think it's there anymore. In fact, I know it's not there anymore. But I absolutely loved it. You know, it's not classical music. It's, uh, but the, the pianists were fantastic. And everybody was just cheering them on. And, and it's, it's quite a skill to sit at the piano and just have all this music at your fingertips and play it. And so. I thought that would be a good idea for the book <laughs> that they duel with classical music. And that's, that's how I got, that's how I got the idea. I had done a story also on the Nordstrom piano player. I don't know if you have ever been into Nordstrom's where they have the piano player there. I think so. I'm trying to think. I haven't been in Nordstrom in so long. We used to eat lunch there a fair amount, but I'm trying to think about, oh yes, downstairs in ours. As you walk in, I don't know that he's still there, but they used to have the piano there. Yeah, I don't think they do it anymore. But I remember I did a story in the Nordstrom piano player and I interviewed like five different pianists. And that is also an incredible skill. Like not even college professors who teach music, who are pianists themselves can do it. You have to know about 300 to 500 songs. 
So I saw these dueling piano players and I thought they, they must know a lot of songs <laughs> and you got to know your scales, what key you're in. I mean, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's quite a skill. And I thought that would make a fun premise for the novel. So that's where that came from. My mom always loved places that had a live piano player. There's a hotel in Evanston where I went to college and they used to have a piano player and we'd always sit and listen. Anytime there was someone like that, she made us stop and sit down and listen. It was just one of those things that always made her so happy. Yeah. And a, a piano is quite an instrument. I mean, just even physically, it's quite an instrument, but there's such a draw to hearing someone play the piano your feet from the piano. It's just the sound that comes out. It's just, it's, a, it's, it's pretty powerful. I remember uh, last summer, my husband and I were up in Sedona <laughs> and this guy had pushed his acoustic piano out into the street. There's a lot of street performers and he pushed his piano out into the street and just was playing classical music. And it was a big crowd around. It was beautiful. <laughs> so I think everybody, you know, the piano is that kind of an instrument where people are drawn to it. It just, it's, it's beautiful. I think that's right. And I also think it's the call of music. Again, there's just nothing else that can bring that joy, that sound, bring people together. I just think it's wonderful. And our, one of our airports here in Houston, they have live music pretty regularly. Sometimes a piano player, sometimes a violin, sometimes a quartet. It's so nice. You're just thinking, oh, I'm in the airport where things are kind of hectic and you know the last couple of years have been so rough. And then you just have this very nice, calm, soothing music. It really does make an impact on everybody, I think. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Well, what surprised you the most when writing the second ending? What surprised me the most was, so the characters were pretty organic. I, I'm not one of those writers that can think about them ahead of time and okay, we're going to have this guy be the competitor. And this they just kind of, I guess they just drop out of the sky. <laughs> they spring fully formed. Yeah, like Holden and not giving anything away. But um, Holden was a character that I started writing. You know, wouldn't it be funny if this little boy, you know, interrupted this session? And then then he started to come to me. Well, children are just, they love music. and. And they're very curious about it. And that age, I think Holden is six in the novel. It comes to them pretty quickly. So I think language and learning a foreign language and learning music is, is optimum, I think, around the age of six. So it did. So the characters kind of surprised me. They just came out of nowhere. And I thought, oh, hello. <laughs> Would you like to be in my novel? <laughs> I loved Holden. He's probably my favorite character. And just, again, the impact of music. I was thinking about him earlier when we were talking about music and the difference music can make. So I don't want to say anything else because I don't want to spoil anything, but I loved Holden and just everything that was happening with him. So that was a, it was a beautiful part of the story. Yes, thank you. What about the highlight of writing the book? I think the highlight of writing the book is, I think the book was my own dream. And it's my first novel. And I, the highlight of writing the book is actually completing it. Every single morning, I jumped out of bed very early because I was thinking about my book and I couldn't wait to write it. And, you know, it's not, it's writing is hard. So not every day wasn't easy, but completing the book was really just to me such an accomplishment. It's a pretty um, ambitious book. There's a lot of storylines in there. 
So it was a lot of work. And when you start a book, especially your first one, it's like, oh my gosh, it just, it seems impossible to finish this thing. And then you finish and it it felt really good. So I think that was my own impossible dream. (laughs) I did meet the goal, but I did enjoy every single day writing this book. And it became, you know, I would get up in the morning and write for two hours. And if the writing went well, I didn't care what happened the rest of the day. I could bring it. I can take anything. (laughs) There was such satisfaction with those two hours in the morning that the rest of the day, you know, whatever, I can take it. So I think that's that's really the importance of dreams is is getting that satisfaction and fulfilling your potential. How long did it take you to write it? It took probably about a year and a half. So it's less than what people think. Uh, my daughter was in college. My son had just gone off to college. So I I had time. I didn't and I wasn't writing for the paper anymore. So it was a good time for me to start a novel. And even though you know, I really didn't do much writing past noon. I'm not somebody who can write well the whole day. Sometimes I'll problem solve in the afternoon, but the best writing is in the morning. The novel stays with me though. I'm thinking about it the whole day. So I didn't have very many distractions either. I could, you know, be watching TV and it's like, oh, that reminds me of a character in my novel. I'm going to have to write that down. And a lot of times, so I'm a little bit like Prudence. I love to take baths. That is my thing. (laughs) And every night before dinner, I'll get in the tub with a novel, with a notebook and a drink, and I'll read and I'll problem solve things in my novel. And, um, you know, the tub is very relaxing. Your inhibitions are gone. So it's a good time for me to uh, think about things that characters that, you know, aren't quite there yet, or where, why is the material fighting me here? What do I, what am I missing here? So I, I do that a lot. (laughs) It's my favorite time of day. (laughs) Well, I think your brain needs that time. Like you need to be sitting down and writing part of the day, but then you need time for everything to kind of come together. You need to cogitate, you need to have that time where everything's working itself out while you're not writing. And it sounds like for you, that's the bath. Yes. Yes. And it's at the end of the day, I'm kind of done with the day. I don't have to worry about things that I have to get done. It's everything is pretty much done. And it's, you know, it's earned, it's an earned bath. (laughs) Sometimes I call it my husband and will say, is it a working tub tonight? (laughs) If I have to like figure out some story problems, but for the most part though, it's just, it allows me to just relax and think. And enjoy that quiet time where probably you don't have anyone bothering you because hopefully you don't have your phone with you. So you don't have to worry about phone calls coming in. You can just have it be your time. Exactly. That's exactly it. I don't bring my phone in there. I, it, there's no I, no earbuds, nothing. It's just me, door shut. <laughs> and the kids know when they're home, you know, door shut. Mom's got to have her hour. And it's it's usually at least an hour. Yeah, it's kind of my time. But yeah. And you don't mind when the water gets cold? If it gets cold, I'll like drain a little bit of it out, <laughs> put more hot water in. <laughs> we live in Arizona though. So, you know, it's, it's not, it, the water stays pretty warm. <laughs> well, you're also thinking it's pretty warm outside, so I don't need that warm a bath. Right. Exactly. I'm not really a bath person. I shower. So I'm always totally intrigued with this idea of sitting in the bath for that long. Cause I'm like, oh my gosh, I would be like, get me out of here. But it is very relaxing <laughs> for some people. 
yes, I got my bath salts and everything. It's just, it's, it's part of my day. Yeah, absolutely. One of my daughters used to read in the bath all the time, and then she just kept dropping the books in the bathtub. So finally, I was like, I don't mind if you do that, but I need it not to be any of my books. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that a few times, dropped it in the bath. It's like, oh, gosh, now I've written this book. Really expands a book. <laughs> yeah, way wider than they started out. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Well, before we wrap up, Michelle, what have you read recently that you really liked? So I've just finished Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng, and she is just Anytime Celeste puts out a book, this is her third one, I pre-order it because I think she's such a fantastic writer. I mean, from the story to the prose, I will read anything she writes. Right now, what I'm reading in the bath is The Guest by Emma Klein. And I'm already, she is also another terrific writer. I was just immediately pulled in by the story. There's such a haunting aspect to her writing. And very skilled. She wrote The Girls and, and a collection of short stories. And she is another one. Anything she puts out there, I'm going to buy it. So those are my two, my two recommendations are Missing Hearts, Celesting, and The Guest by Emma Klein. I loved Our Missing Hearts. I just thought that was such a beautiful story. And I was really worried how it was going to end. And again, obviously no spoilers, but I thought the ending was really well done. Yes. You can always count on Celeste. And her first novel, Everything I Never Told You, that novel, I almost didn't write because the first line in that novel is like the best line since, oh, what's the happy family? The, since the Tolstoy line, it's um, Lydia's dead and nobody knows it yet. <laughs> Did you read her first novel? I didn't read her first novel. I've only read the second two. The, the, I've only read the second and the third. The first one is terrific too. But that first line, it's... That's what I, I aspire to achieve, a first line like that. <laughs> it's terrific. But yeah, I love Celeste. And I think you'll love The Guest by Emma Klein, too. It's, it's, she's a terrific writer. I'm worried it's a little creepy for me. It probably is. <laughs> I'm already kind of creeped out, too. <laughs> yeah, I have heard so many people raving about it, and I know it's very popular, but I don't think it's in my wheelhouse. Like, I just think I would be going, oh, my gosh, I'll never sleep again. Yeah, yeah. But I've heard great things about it, so that is good to know. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I can't wait for the second ending to make its way out into the world and have people reading it. Thank you. This was really fun. I, I could do this all day. <laughs> I could too. So, well, thanks for taking the time to come on my show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show 
and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.